This is Medicine on the Frontier, a unique expeditions podcast hosted by Luke Whittle-Gillard and Matt Hans. Well guys, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to, to have you guys listening here with us again. Matt, how are you doing, buddy? Very well, Luke. How are you? Yeah, man, I'm glad to be back and making podcasts again. It's just, it's good to be going. It's our first episode today of our new format, which I'm really excited about. Uh, Every episode now, we're going to highlight some recent news uh, stories regarding the expedition world of adventure. And given today's topic, I wanted to talk about two stories. You're going to tell us about this first one, this Norwegian mountaineer epic. Tell us all about it. Absolutely. So a little bit of news from my neck of the woods. Um, The world-renowned mountaineer, Christian Harale, uh, who's actually from Finnmark, right up in the area of Norway where I live. Um, Obviously, her and her teammate, Tenyan Sherpa, have just smashed the world record for summit in the world's 14 highest peaks in no less than three months and a day, which is an absolutely outstanding achievement. I mean, what are your thoughts on that, Luke? It's crazy. I think when, you know, we had Project Possible with Nims Perja, the the ex-Special Forces Gurkha, he, he did it in six months and five days. And she's just come and absolutely smashed it. Uh, so it, it's incredible. She's the first woman to do this. Uh, and she's only the second person ever after Nims to do it. So it, it's insane that she's been able to do this. She may be the first woman, but she's definitely not going to be the last. And, you know, by making her dreams a reality, she's definitely inspired people all over the world to do the same. Uh, I don't know if she's inspired you, Matt, to, to climb any mountains, has she? Absolutely not. No, I think the, the, the more people who take these mountains and take wonderful pictures for people like me, the better. Um, works fine, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and then the second story I saw, uh, and one of our guests sent it to me, which is great, we're going to talk about it a lot more uh, as a topic, is the BBC did an article on how scientists in the UK are tackling this taboo subject of, of periods in polar research. And we, we've had Dr. Rebecca Boys from the British Antarctic Survey on the podcast before, and, and that same organisation has now created this working party to produce tips on dealing with periods in polar conditions, which, you know, as someone to de- deal with it, it's, you know, it's pretty cold. Uh, you don't want to deal with the exposure. And there's, there's a whole lot of environmental considerations that we're going to talk about. But, they, you know, they're now starting to reimburse staff for period products. They're researching non-male clothing options, among a lot of other projects. But it's striking to me that we still have so much to do. And that brings us nicely onto our guests. Today we are lucky to have two incredible women in their own right joining us, so it's great to have you guys here. First we have Dr. Mabley Davis, who is an anaesthetist trainee based in Manchester, an expedition and endurance event medic who has completed a diploma and MSc in expedition and wilderness medicine through the University of South Wales and has a special interest in women in the outdoors, particularly menstruation management and suppression methods. On top of being an avid sportswoman and adventurer herself, we actually went to Norway together, so I'm great to to see her again and have her on the show. And joining her is Dr. Natalie Brown, a research scientist focusing on the menstrual cycle and the impacts on everything from participation to competitive elite sports. She's been an Arcteryx ambassador for the last year in support of their science and research program to provide information to promote and empower women in the outdoors. She's an avid climber, surfer and mountain biker as well. Absolutely awesome to have you guys here. Welcome to you both. How are you doing, Mably? Hi, Luke. Thank you for having us both. It's, uh, yeah, I'm good, thank you. And looking forward to having some really good discussions today. Awesome. How are you, Natalie? How are you doing? I'm great, thanks. Good to be on, good to be on here. Really great to uh, have such an important conversation, I think. Um, and I think it will be 
not only interesting for hopefully others listening, but I think for us today talking to each other. So um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, we, we're so excited to have you here. You know, Matt and I have been talking about this and Matt was like, we've got to do it, we've got to do it. Um, so yeah, we're really excited to have you. So let's just kick it off then. Tell us a bit about you. Uh, Natalie, if you want to go first, you know, what drew you to the outdoors? That is a really good question. Um, I think actually, first of all, one of the, you know, I've always been like outside a lot, but actually during my PhD, going outdoors and doing exercise outdoors was a really good coping strategy for me. It was one place where I actually had a bit of headspace away from thinking about my PhD. And from there, I think I just really found that kind of love and passion for it and continued even after, even after persevering through a PhD um, to, to continue to and almost like evolve and try new things and experience and um, explore a bit further. That's amazing. And was there anywhere in particular that you, you know you found that you're driven to? Are you someone that loves polar regions or high mountains or deserts, jungles? What is it that really gets you drive? I definitely, I think my predominant focus is around climbing and track climbing. So anywhere where there's some good rock. Um, so sometimes that's like up in the mountains. I'm actually just back from three weeks in Scotland. Um, so getting up in the mountains, doing some multi-pitch um, climbing, but also some amazing sea cliffs like by the coast. So yeah, really varied. It's, um, it's more, I suppose, the, the openness and that kind of that opportunity to combine it with climbing that's the the real driver for me yeah, that's amazing I've just started track climbing and I still don't trust gear I haven't got there yet <laughs> um I trust nuts just about but cams I'm like no 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 so um that's definitely something I need to work on and then you know you do your uh, and your PhD I'm, I'm guessing was to do what we're going to talk about today but how did you first discover this lack of research into women's health in the outdoors so yeah, so my PhD wasn't specifically focused on the metro cycle, but I looked at hormonal responses in terms of elite performance. Um, and predominantly that had always been within males um, and male athletes. So I was actually looking at that kind of topic area across male and female athletes. Um, and I suppose that's where I came to that point where I was like, there's actually no information on female athletes in terms of <laughs> hormonal responses. Um, and really started digging a bit deeper then from that point but also from a personal perspective I've always before kind of um, doing a lot of climbing I used to be a competitive swimmer and again used to start seeing the differences across my menstrual cycle and wanted to learn a bit more around that myself um, and taking that into climbing so yeah it was both from a kind of scientific perspective but also I suppose from my own personal experience of wanting to know more yeah, that's that's incredible, and it strikes me that you know even in twenty twenty three, there's still such a disparity in research between uh, men and women. And how have you found now with, with you doing this research? I know you do all these conferences. What's been the response to that? It's really exciting. I think when I first started research in this area, it was felt like a bit of an alone d- doing it alone. Um, not many other people really to connect with um, and talk to in terms of that research. Um, But definitely within the last two years, that's changed massively. And it's really exciting, the the openness and also the interest, which has been shown by other people to want to learn more, to want to collaborate, to want to take, you know, take part in the research as a participant, 
or to actually actively complete that research. So it's been actually like a really nice journey to be on. Um, and I feel like we're just at the start of that kind of quite rapidly grown trajectory, really. Fantastic. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that this podcast gives us another outlet to um, for people to ask more questions about this, Natalie, and drive it forward. Um, Mably, we haven't seen each other since you were last here in the Arctic with me. Um, so I'm going to just let you introduce again, just for the for the listeners. How was it you got into the outdoors? Yeah, so I think, uh, yeah, I've been having a think about this after what Natalie has just been saying. I think I grew up in Swansea Valley in South Wales and it's sort of where my parents uh, live is exactly halfway really between the Bracken Beacons or I should say Banai Brecheniog now um, and the Gower um, and I was just outdoors a lot as a child and both of my parents as well pretty sporty mum into running dad into cycling and rugby and just got into sort of snow sports and hiking with them and I guess as I got a bit older and I was you know going into my teenage years and given a bit more independence and freedom to sort of explore a bit um yeah I went to Ethiopia with World Challenge when I was 16 17 and sort of from there really I sort of sparked an interest and just loved that team environment of being on an expedition and quite some challenging environments um, and just really enjoyed the connection that the outdoors gives you really. Yeah, it really is a, a very special time when um, when you remove yourself from the kind of day-to-day realities and, and drop yourself in the middle of middle of nowhere ultimately to um, to do whatever it is that the plan of the expedition was. I think that's a real drive for, for most people. Is there any, I mean, obviously we've been together in the Arctic of Norway. Um, I'm very aware you're an, you're an avid kind of trail runner, fell runner. What what are the, the environments that really kind of draw you in? Is there, are you just open for anything? Yeah, I think I am open for anything, actually. <laughs> to be honest, I would say I do prefer a cold environment. And I do think the UK climate does not get enough, I don't know if it's credit or disservice, I'm not sure, but it is definitely underrated as like a tough tough climate to be outdoors in and like living close to the peak district spend some time in snowdonia and the lakes at the minute i just like i just love being out in the cold wet and wind um and yeah and in the snow as well like you said Matt, when we were in uh when i was up in norway with yourself last year it was just great i just loved it and um it's just magical really yeah, I, I must admit, I agree. I'm, and I, I totally agree about your statements on the UK. I have been closer to hypothermia in Scotland than anywhere else in the world. Um, it's the, the UK is a pretty brutal environment. And it's because it's so unstable. And that driving wind, the rain, it's, um, yeah, it certainly has the ability to get under your skin uh, and really push you to the limits. Um, so obviously the topic for today how was it, Mavs, apart from obviously being a woman in the outdoors, that you became kind of a little bit more energised around the subject of, you know, women's health in the outdoors? Yeah, so I've I've always really struggled with my own period and menstrual cycle. And I still feel like I'm every every month a learning, a learning curve, really. Um, and I think, yeah, as I sort of, you know, throughout my teenage years and then throughout my 20s, doing different things and different expeditions and sports 
trying to research myself as in just read up a little bit about how I can manage my own period um and there really just wasn't much I mean there is more and more out there now but there's really limited stuff out there that I found useful or helpful or sort of for someone particularly as a teenager before I'd gone to medical school and uni and have done some studying for to understand really what what to do and I didn't really think that information out there was that accessible um so that's sort of how I then sparked it, it sparked my own interest to sort of carry on and do my own research really and pick up where things I thought my younger self and other women would would find helpful really yeah I mean it's a it's a fascinating subject you know I'm the father of three daughters um you know, my ex-wife and my current partner are both serving soldiers. Um, and I remember back in the day with, with Catherine, you know, there was nothing. There was no support there at all. Here, uh, order with the Norwegian military, you know, there's a lot of things that are given to them. You know, sanitary products and things are provided by the military. Um, but that's where it stops. There's very little more about it. Um, you know, my, my eldest daughter is uh, an active athlete. She competes in the 800 metres. And again, it's something that, that does bother her. She's 16 years old. And these are kind of conversations that, from a father's perspective, I mean, I have even less information purely because it doesn't come up in my day-to-day feed. Um, you know, and I think the spread of this information, I mean, it literally affects 50% of the population. Um, and it's happening once a month, every month really we we should be talking about this a lot more so i'm super happy to have you guys on today um and it's certainly going to be a fantastic learning curve for myself and um, with information that i can i can try and come forward and, and keep pushing these subjects so uh, i'm really looking forward so um let's uh let's get into the the nitty-gritty then and uh, and dive in luke yeah let's do it so you know and i think you hit the nail on the head there it's 50 percent of the world are women and and yet we still are are having this disparity you know in preparation for this you know i've spoken to to both mably and natalie about it and you know it's one of those things of uh, we're going to talk about schools later but wales has said it's going to take them till 2027 to provide free sanitary products in in their schools i don't know why it takes that long it seems it's just a run down to the local supermarket um, which I admit is further away probably in Wales than it is in London. But still, it's not, you know, <laughs> it's not four years. Uh, so I don't, you know, it, th- there needs to be more action. I think this is hopefully going to at least give a bit of information to, to everyone out there, whether you're a, a man or a woman and whether you work as a medic or, or just or just interested in it. Uh, so can you guys explain to me, um, and I don't know who wants to go first, just a bit more about what these barriers and added struggles that women face are? Uh, because I think so many of them sort of we just are oblivious to. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy I'm to. Happy to- Oh, it's a fight now. Um... (laughs) I was going to just say, there's so many, like the obvious one that we've talked about, I guess, so far is menstruation. But that's probably one of the main ones and perhaps one of the biggest ones um, that we face. It's just an extra thing for us to manage as girls. But there's so much more... um, there's just a lot of different things out there really things like clothing I'm sure Natalie can talk about that with his stuff with Arctrix you know things as you know clothing fitting and things like sports bras underwear um there's there's loads of different things really that I I don't think gets the recognition or the acknowledgement that it should really 
And can you just, Nasty, can you just explain to us a bit more on the clothing bit? Is it that the there's limited options? Is it that it's expensive? Is it that it's just not fit for purpose? What is it about clothing? And I'm sure there's different issues for all different types, but what is it about it that makes it a challenge? Good question. I think one of the... I'm trying to think now of what was recently recently in the news, but previously a lot of kit had been designed for men. Mm. And like expedition clothes were designed for men. Um, so in terms of like the fit and the comfort and the practicality of that, um and so there has started to be a shift in terms of actually it is being like fitted for women um and there's more availability it's even just like the accessibility the availability of women's clothing now um which i think has grown but that's definitely been like one of the kind of um i suppose limiting or barriers previously i think one of the things when i think about it is also like clothing is designed exactly for males so if you just think about having a period needing to or even just going to the toilet um in general like the design of trousers like you're exposed like you have to completely expose yourself basically so actually you know how could that be changed what could be different so that it's a bit more accessible it's not such a barrier um for kind of women and girls it's so interesting that because I was talking to a friend of mine who is a woman, I was on an expedition with her, and she was saying to me that even though this was for backpacks, that even though they've now got women's straps for her backpacks, because she's not your sort of general petite girl, that she actually needs a male backpack because the waist straps are too small, that they don't make one that can fit round her hips, but then can also fit round her shoulders. Um, so it seems that there's, there still needs to be quite a lot of work there. Is that something which, you know, our brands responsive to to the industry or is it still quite slow and stagnating with that to be honest I don't feel like I completely know what's going on in other brands um, to be able to like comment on that I think there's definitely an openness or um, maybe even an awareness that actually people are talking out people are now saying actually that backpack isn't comfortable this doesn't fit, there isn't this availability. And I think brands are now starting to recognise they do need to respond to that because there are an increasing amount of women and girls within, like, outdoors that want to take part and are taking part in those activities, so mm. naturally need to respond to that. Um, so I think there will... I think it's still behind, but I do think there, hopefully, in the future, there is this shift towards recognising that actually something different needs to be done. It has. I think I completely agree. I mean, one of the biggest things I noticed moving from the UK to Norway was actually the availability of a really good quality outdoor equipment for women and girls. Um, you know, the UK was, it seems almost impossible to, to find anything that wasn't either pink or purple. Mm-hmm. And also based around some kind of fashion element, there was very little practicality with the equipment. Um, Whereas here, you know, the Norwegians have an incredible culture. It's called the tour culture. Um, People love being outside. They love going hiking. Everyone loves sitting around the fire and grilling sausages. Um, And the equipment options for children, especially, but moving into kind of young females and and, 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 and adult women, um, there's a much better choice here. And that is, you know, brands like Norinet, Alklimmer for thermals and things, they seem to have really stepped up with the kind of women's shapes and designs. But it is something that's vastly lacking. And being an expedition guy for such a long time, I've obviously taken a huge amount of women out on expedition. 
And there's always been these issues, you know, how do we manage the, the lack of equipment available for women? And things like the rucksacks are a great point, Luke. You know, you are in some instances with expeditions carrying in excess of 20, 25 kilograms on your back. It has to be comfortable. You know, you cannot expect somebody to, um, to keep going on an expedition with the same amount of drive and energy that everybody else has if they're in pain. Um, mm. It's, you know, these kind of things. But I, I'm hoping that the more we have this kind of discussion in the press, the more amazing women that are coming forward and, and just undertaking these incredible feats are really going to stamp this down onto the industry and say that, you know, now is enough is enough. We have a need, a strong requirement for the same level of attention to detail in our equipment manufacturing for, for both sexes. Um, so, yeah, so I'm, uh, it's, it is, it's a very, uh, it's a very wild kind of, um, I can't really put a, a term to it why this hasn't been done before. It's, it's very I, frustrating. I agree with you, Matt. And I think when you think of like back, like an, an, a rucksack where it sits on your hips, where it sits around women's breasts, it, they've all got to be comfortable and, you know, minimize chafing. Otherwise it's going to cause more problems really. And same with harnesses. I'm sure Natalie have probably had, you know, I've got, I have got a climbing harness that's for women, but it did take me a few goes to try on different ones that that fitted me and and was suitable for me. And I think when you look at you know women's clothing, have you just a sort of open question really? But have you, do you have any of you ever seen like maternity outdoor kit? Any sort of you know walking trousers even for pregnant women? Um, when no. you start to get no. a baby bump no no, no um, I mean usually it's my trousers that get used yeah um, exactly and then you go to yeah. men's stuff and they don't fit properly for a baby bump or give the support that perhaps a baby bump needs um, and it doesn't you know just because you're pregnant doesn't mean that you need to you know be housebound you can still get out and do the mm. stuff that you do within reason and you know if you're safe and know what you're doing but there's very little things out there and it, it just all these barriers really and that's why I guess we're having these conversations to try and break them down. It's all about inclusivity. I think I can't remember if it was Adidas or Nike, uh, and someone will correct me, I'm sure. But you know, making the first hijab inclusive swimsuit for for female athletes to be able to compete, uh, that uh, that were following Islam. And it's crazy to me that that only just came out three or four years ago. Uh, but I think it needs that public drive to, to be able to to really facilitate it because, you know, if people don't ask for it, they're not going to, you know, manufacture it. Um, and I think that comes from knowledge. And so I think that probably leads us great onto our next question, which is, uh, Mably, please, can you just, if, for anyone that's non-medical and for Matt and I, can you just break down the biology uh, of the menstrual cycle a bit more for us so we understand when we go on to talk about the different challenges, what we're actually talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll break it down, you know, very simply for for all of us to understand. And there's no point going into the, you know, the nitty gritty of all the science and the different hormones and things if, if that's not what interests you. But essentially, you've got your two phases of the menstrual cycle. So you've got your follicular phase, which typically is day one to 15 of the cycle. Um, and then you have the luteal phase, which is typically day 16 to 28. Um, and it's worth noting that cycle lengths can vary. And I think 
what is considered as a normal cycle is between 21 and 35 days. So obviously those, those uh, two phases do vary a little bit. So in your follicular phase then to start, so the first five days uh, tends to be when a woman has her menses, so has her period. Um, and throughout this cycle, you get what's called folliculogenesis. So essentially, it's where the follicle or the egg um, sort of matures in the ovary. Um, and you get high levels of folliculating, uh, follicular stimulating hormone at that point. And as the estrogen levels increase, it causes something else called the luteinizing hormone um, to get released from an area of your brain called the anterior pituitary gland. Um, and the high levels of this LH or luteinizing hormones triggers the rupture of the follicle around day 15, which is the ovulation. So the egg leaves the ovary, travels down the fallopian tube um, and into sort of it goes into the lining of the endometrium. And that's where you enter that second phase, the luteal phase, where that mature egg um, either is going to get fertilized if um, there's a pregnancy or it sort of regresses and degenerates. Um, and as it sort of regresses and degenerates, you get um, a fall in the estrogen. And throughout this phase, you get quite a high level of progesterone. And that's when your the cycle sort of restarts as your endometrium lining sheds again. So that's kind of the overview, really. The two phases of the follicular phase and your luteal phase in summary. Yeah, that's great and you know that, that's a great recap for me because I haven't studied a and p uh, anatomy and physiology for a while so it's always good to to get a recap from it so thank you for that and Natalie can you just explain to us you know with these different phases where you know we talk about the different challenges that women face we're going to talk about them in a lot more detail in a bit but where do these different challenges fit into these phases when it comes to women you know operating in the outdoors yeah, definitely. So what I tend to, um, when I talk around um, potential symptoms that might be experienced or how um, that might affect women outdoors, is to break those two phases, that follicular phase and that luteal phase, just break them down slightly further into four phases overall. So phase one, I call the early follicular phase. Phase two, the late follicular phase. Phase three, the mid luteal phase. And phase four, the late luteal phase. And it's the late luteal phase that we commonly um, refer to that as PMS. Um, so if you've heard of, you know, when, when we talk about PMS, that's normally within that late luteal phase where you've got this quite rapid decline in both hormones. Um, and that's what I suppose, especially more usually within the late luteal phase, you might get more symptoms related to maybe like mood. Um, whereas actually within the early follicular phase, so when you're actually on your period, again, it's the the physical symptom of bleeding that can sometimes be one of the challenges for um, women when they're outdoors. So there's different elements in terms of like physical um, and also kind of more psychological behavioural symptoms that can vary across the menstrual cycle that might affect um, women outdoors at different times. And can you just explain to us what PMS means? I think that yep. gets thrown out quite a lot, but then some people just don't actually know what that means. Yeah, so premenstrual symptoms or premenstrual syndrome, like it can be used kind of quite interchangeably. Madly, I'm not sure which, which one you would go with from a medical perspective. Um, so essentially that is, uh, as it says, it's like the time where you have, it's the time just before your period, 
pre-menses where there's um, usually kind of more negatively um, related symptoms that are associated with the changes in hormone levels. And they are quite vast, aren't they? You know, I mean, I, I am a, uh, a partner, a father. I'm very aware of the menstrual cycle. The, the psychological and physiological implications of the menstrual cycle vary hugely between person to person. But equally, they are somewhat debilitating. You know, they, I, I mean, I've done a, quite a bit of research on this in preparation to this podcast, um, which has been wonderful. Um, but I have seen, like, dating back uh, an awfully long way into kind of you know tribes living on the ground hunter gatherer styles females going through menstrual cycle were protected they were they were bedded down for up to seven days and things were provided for them there was no expectation that women in those times were going to be active members of the community um, because of this because you know i mean my partner i mean i'm sure she'll love me talking about her on a podcast but she has <laughs> horrific back pain i mean to the point where she sometimes really struggles to put her socks on and she's a 30 year old soldier you know she's a very active and healthy female um but she really struggles to operate for at least three or four days the first three or four days of this pms as it is um it's horrific for her um and it really does you know and this is a constant conversation with her. we're very open about what we talk about it's obviously you know we live in close quarters we have young children there is stresses um but I have to be, as a man, very aware that of what time of the month it is, because there is, you know, the, the way that she can maybe react to a certain situation will change depending on where we are within that, that menstrual cycle. Is there external factors which can kind of fluctuate the way that these hormones have an effect on the body? Or is it just internal physiology that, that does that? And, and basically the, the kind of book you're left with is what you get for the rest of your time. Or is there things we can do to improve or or kind of settle those uh symptoms yeah there's massively external factors that um can affect it so things like stress sleep your diet um they're like things straight away that can those external factors as you said that can affect individuals um, and as you like highlighted there, Matt, that actually everyone will have a completely unique experience of their menstrual cycle. So although there are some common symptoms, everyone is completely unique in terms of what they experience and how the external factors interact with individual hormone levels is really variable for person to person. Brilliant. I mean, Mabs, a quick question for you. Why is it so taboo? Why is it? Why do we not talk about this stuff? Is it because it's blood and it comes out of a vagina? Is that the problem? You know, why? Why is this such an awkward subject for people to sit down and talk about when it is clearly affecting everybody? I mean, yeah, from my point of view, I think it's it's crazy, really, that it's you know it's twenty twenty three and it still is a taboo. And as you said, is it because it's blood? I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, for me as a medical doctor, blood definitely does not phase me. Um, but perhaps <laughs> for the general population, it does. And I think any time you start talking about your sort of body fluids or body function, it's the same as any sort of, you know, get like diarrhea or things that's also common on expedition to some parts of the world. Like it's anything that's sort of relatively considered squeamish um people find it hard to talk about I guess and there's no reason why periods should be squeamish and um perhaps there's there's an element of it that maybe we do 
there's elements that we do over medicalize perhaps because it is just a normal part of a female's you know biology and physiology and obviously there are times when when things uh, deviate from the normal treatment and and medics have to get involved but actually it's it's a very normal and natural process to have and we shouldn't be you know shutting down those conversations and having more conversations like this i couldn't agree more i I couldn't agree more um as we obviously myself and luke don't often get invited to the girls nights out so is you know (laughs) is this something that women as groups talk about together do you you know I mean, I'm, I'm just kind of looking, I've got, I've got three daughters, as I say, you know, are there, is this the kind of thing within women's circles that's also difficult to talk about? Or is it something that's a bit more open when we're all sitting and having these discussions? Or, or is it not? Is it still something that's kind of left on the quiet, even in those um, close circles of, you know, people who are affected? Yeah. I, don't, I don't know about you, Natalie, but because I have friends, family, um, that know I have an interest in menstruation. They just love telling me the details of their periods. Um, <laughs> I, I get all the ins and outs. But I mean, I, I guess that's any sort of sort of medical professional often experiences that. But I, I, I think it's great, you know, when I have people who are saying, oh my gosh, last month this happened to me and that's never happened to me before. And it's a really interesting way of sort of balancing is it is it something that's changed and you need to see a doctor or is it something that's you know periods do change over time like my my period or our our periods aren't the same as when we first started as teenagers when you're 13 years old and they won't be the same when I'm 50 years old and going through perimenopause and symptoms change and um, your experiences change as well and I think it's really important to have open conversations about them um, because otherwise how that's how a lot of people you know find find out that things are abnormal when they say oh yeah I've had this and someone else says that's not right I've never heard of that or oh gosh I don't know if that's a symptom that's supposed to be happening and then it does you know spark discussions and hopefully prompts people to get the right support or help or uh, that they need really absolutely absolutely um Natsi, I mean is there a, you know, we're talking about kind of, we're looking at our menstrual cycle. Um, my partner has this app called, I think it's called Flow or something, where she's writing in lots of things about her mood and, you know, are, are they useful? I mean, she, she is using it with a passion. Um, you know, it's all there about her, her kind of how she feels sexually, you know, all of these things. It's a, it's a very detailed application. Um, but I'm not entirely sure she knows how to interpret the information that's coming back out of it, you know, and what that's what that's actually saying. Are there good resources for women to use where they can kind of track these things? And as Mab's just said, are, are we starting to see where we have abnormalities? Are these things being flagged through certain applications or is it just people jumping on a bandwagon and creating a uh, an application to make some money which really isn't serving a greater purpose? I actually think that apps have been like really helpful in opening up the conversation um, in terms of actually more um, tracking. So individuals are starting to take a bit more ownership or kind of it's empowering them a bit more to try and understand their own cycles, which that's something I'd always encourage is, you know, through tracking, you can start working out maybe what symptoms are related to the menstrual cycle in symptoms and hormone changes compared to symptoms that aren't related because there's some symptoms that 
could be, you know, if you're feeling a bit more fatigued, which is really common within that late luteal phase, equally you could feel more fatigued because you've got a really busy lifestyle, you've had really poor sleep. So it's, it re- it's really helpful in terms of actually individuals understanding and therefore potentially looking at how they might manage those. Um, so I do think tracking is useful, but what potentially is missing is the information available for what you can then do. So, you know, I do see a lot of individuals that have tracked and say, well, yes, I now know I've got X, Y and Z symptoms, but don't have the next step or the next support in terms of, well, actually, how could you manage that or what could you do to mitigate that? Um, And actually, that's potentially what's generally missing within research and within resources. Um, So, yeah, I do think tracking is good. I always advise it, but equally there's like this missing piece of the puzzle that I think like actually helps individuals as as you said to actually know what to do with that information like what does that mean that's the bit that's that's missing yeah yeah I I, yeah, I mean I, I must admit I'm gonna have to get back on the flow app and uh, and start to see what kind of information uh, is being spat out the other end and see what really that that translates into so as we look at from an expedition setting uh, we can break it down into two. We have the you know, physiological and the psychological effects on an expedition of the menstrual cycle. We, we'll start with physiological. Um, we're on expedition. Is there a good time for you to go on expedition? Do you, do you need to ideally plan your expedition around the menstrual cycle? Or is there measures that we can bring into place? Or you know, do we need to look at further advancements and things for the, the physical issues that come alongside having your period whilst on expedition, you know, where do you stand on that? Yeah, I think your period... Who wants to go? Maps? I was going to say, your period or our period should not hold us back from doing anything. And it's it's really sad to hear, actually, when people say that their symptoms are, are that debilitating, really, that they can't carry on and do the things that they would like to do and meet their goals. And I think... There's um there's a really good uh, uh, study by by a Critchley et al. and it was published in 2020, and she describes these four domains of what a normal uh, period, whatever you consider normal to, but the four domains that sh- that in this study they talk about, and that's the frequency of your period, how regular the period is, the duration of the period, and the volume of the bleeding. And I think that's a really, really nice way to like break down and look at all those challenges that the period itself. I know we've we've talked about the premenstrual uh, syndrome that you can get and the symptoms you get in the run up to the period. Um, but actually, when with the bleeding itself, those four domains really highlight the the challenges that that women might face, along with obviously the pain, the dysmenorrhea we call it, that comes along with that. Really good. So how does that, uh, if we're looking at dealing with a period on expedition, what options have you got as of today? And maybe what options would you like to see in the future for yeah, for dealing with that? I mean, we can use any environment as an example. You can choose one. Um, I think each environment has their own challenges. You know, if we're talking about things like mountainous or altitude, there's there's a chance you might be wearing a harness, which can be make changing products quite difficult you might be on a water-based expedition you might be doing some rowing or swimming or kayaking which you know might make some uh, products unsuitable or makes it very uncomfortable to wear them and doesn't make them very doesn't work 
very well in that environment. And then you've got hot environments as well, which can be quite humid, hot, sweaty, um, which can saturate clothing and saturate uh, products, making them uncomfortable and increasing infection risk. And I think it's about, you know, balancing. Um, it's really easy to talk about expedition as one category, and I'm sure that this applies to everything, but every sort of environment is so different. And I really wish I could say, this is the one answer that you need to manage your period. Um, but unfortunately, there isn't. But I think, yeah, briefly speaking, I think Natty, we can break them down into like reusable products and disposable products. And that's probably a good place to start talking and, and sort of thinking about what options are available to us on expedition. Yeah, and I think I'd just add in there as well, I suppose the the one thing, and this is me thinking also from an elite sport perspective of what happens is actually do you choose to take some form of hormonal contraceptive to actually stop the bleed? So if we're talking just around managing the bleeding, you know, do you take some form of hormonal contraceptive? And again, I always find that's like, very individual in terms of what that person wants um, and also feels comfortable with. Um, a lot of the time, like I think from a expedition perspective in just being active outdoors, it's there's definitely the ability to manage your menstrual cycle naturally. It's sometimes exactly as you said, thinking about what products you might use. So actually is a menstrual cup that's you can keep in for much longer, that's okay in the water. Um, is that a better option than something disposable? Um, but then you've got the flip side of that of needing clean water to be able to clean that out. So it's around like, you know, thinking about the pros and cons. And it'd be, I suppose we could actually have that conversation in terms of what those pros and cons might be of those products. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to, I suppose, bring to that conversation as well in terms of management strategies of actually, you know, people do choose to actually use some form of contraceptive to stop that bleed full stop. Absolutely. Um, which I know you can talk much more to. Yeah, and I think from, you know, being on expedition as the medic and being on an expedition as myself as well, I would say that planning is really key. And if there's one take-home message from this podcast is to plan and to have these conversations, ideally before you go on expedition or right right at the start, if, if you can. Um, because... Going, if you're going to, you know, for example, we were up in the Arctic last year in the tundra, and then if you're in that remote, unfamiliar environment where things like your diet's affected, your sleep's potentially affected, your body's under all these additional um, stresses, and is then the time to start trying a new form of contraception or playing around with uh, different hormones? Probably not. So that's where planning comes into place. And if you can say, right, in three months time or however long, six months time, I'm going away to, I don't know, um, I'm going to climb Kilimanjaro. And what, what can I think about? And what can I do now in preparation to go? And are there, is there a pill that I want to just try and make sure that I'm not going to have really awful side effects from? And that's going to affect my experience of going up a mountain. Um, and what works for you really as well, I would say, familiarity is is really key really with managing menstruation as it's such a subjective um subject and everyone has personal preference comes into it so much as well um when you when you look at all the different products and contraception and sort of suppression methods as well 
And Mabley, can I just ask, how early, what's the lead time that you need to go on to a contraceptive pill before going on an expedition? Is it a matter of weeks or is it like anti-malarials and it's a couple of days? So I'd say it, it depends what contraception you're looking at. So briefly breaking them down into short, shorter acting and longer acting ones. So I would say for your longer acting ones, so I'm talking things like um, the injection or the coil or the implant. Now they have a bunch of side effects and different things and they work differently. I'm not going to go into too much, but they can, for some women, completely stop periods. For some women, they can cause them to be heavier. For some women, they can just cause erratic periods. So for those sorts of things, I would say, just give yourself a chance. If that's something that you want to think about using, it probably is, you know, good to think months in advance for something like that. So you know how your body is planning out. But the other thing to mention is, um, for example, so I had an implant for nine years and then one day I just wouldn't stop bleeding. And, and for nine years, I was absolutely fine, regular as clockwork. And then it just sort of changed. So they can't, things do change and it's not, um, unfortunately, it's not sort of one, one product fits everyone. And then your short term ones or your, your shorter acting ones, you've got your different sorts of um, contraceptive pills. So you've got your combined contraceptive pill, which is probably the most common one that is used, particularly in the UK, where often women will take 21 days, so three weeks worth of tablets, and then they will have a break for seven days where they don't take the tablet. And that's where you get an induced bleed. Um which mimics it's not quite the same physiology as a men, like menstruation itself but it mimics menstruation and there is way, uh, ways you can extend on back to back those sort of um, packets of pills so you can take sort of six weeks together or nine weeks together and then get an induced bleed um, but again often when you then get that bleed at the end of that back to back it can cause more painful or heavy periods. Not in everyone, but it can do. And then the one that I personally use is called norethisterone, which is a progesterone-only pill. Um, And you take that 72 hours before your period starts. So I would say that is really good for people who know or track their periods, going back to the Flow app, that's what I use as well. Um, and if you know when you're due on your period, then that is a good method um, to use. But obviously, that is a luxury that I can calculate my periods and a lot of women can't. Um, I'm not sure, Natalie, mm. if you've got anything else that you've you found helpful or you've used yourself. No, you've kind of covered what kind of has been used in previously or had kind of exposure to. Um, and I think that the key point for me from what you've said there, though, is the planning and you know through tracking you can then look at when does the expedition fall are you likely to be bleeding at that time and therefore so you can like work backwards um, to then be able to make that decision if you want to manage your period or if you want to find a way of kind of stopping the bleeding whilst you're doing that but I think another key aspect is the side effects that you might get the last thing you want is to take a pill having not done it before and that to cause loads of side effects that actually make it worse than if you just had the bleed itself. Because mm-hmm. in some situations that definitely does happen. So I think you'll kind of see a, a common thread through this conversation, potentially in terms of management, is that kind of proactive planning approach. 
Um, yes, it is another thing to think about when you've got loads of other things to plan and organise, but actually it could make a massive difference in terms of the experience you have and then what works for you. I mean, it's a bit, sorry to jump in there, Luke. It's a bit wild from a male perspective to sit here and talk about actually having a medical intervention to stop something naturally occurring so that you can continue doing what you do. Because not only is that an intervention of, of, of medication, but it does have some pretty, as you say, some pretty serious side effects. You know, I've personally noticed, you know, my partner when we first met was on, uh, she'd had the, uh, the implant or the injection, I think. Um, her, you know, the psychological state changed when she was on it to not on it. It was almost like being with a slightly different person. Um, you know, and where, you know, I'm sitting here, I would not take medication uh, to, you know, stop me waking up with a morning erection, for example, which is a completely natural thing to do, right? I would not start taking medication that would make me a different version of myself to stop that, because I think that's a little bit too far. But yet we seem to think it's completely fine for women to do it. And we don't need to worry about actually understanding the, you know, the real effects of what just being with females who have a menstrual cycle month after month after month. It seems like we're you know, is this just an archaic system where we sit there and, you know, we're kind of too interested in ourselves? It, it still baffles me. Yeah, I think you've, yeah, you hit the nail on the head, really. It's a balance of are we going to, are, are we prepared to stop the bleeding, the actual bleeding? And, and I think the key thing as well with the contraception, which I probably should have mentioned, is sometimes it doesn't take away the cramps that you might get in the lead up in that in that luteal phase. Um, and it doesn't take away sort of the breast tenderness. It actually might make it worse, um, headaches and other things. So it's that balance of is it the inconvenience of the bleeding itself versus the symptoms and which one is more distressing for, for that person, that individual, because it is all an individual thing to manage in an unfamiliar and stressful environment. Like I, I'm, I was going to say I'm happy to talk to myself about myself in terms of the fact that for me... My choice is actually I find it easier to manage the bleeding and have mm. a natural cycle rather than to use any form of contraceptives because of actually how that then influenced like my mood and my motivation. So for me, I felt quite flat all the time and quite like low motivation to even want to go and do those activities. Mm. So for me, the preference is actually to have a natural cycle and kind of have learned and adapted how to manage that bleed. And yes, sometimes it's a massive inconvenience when you're 10 pitches up a route and you're just like right I'm on my period okay what am I going to do ahead of time to plan so I can manage that situation it's it's that extra thing to think about sometimes but for me that was the the decision and again I think it's so it is so individual mm -hmm. um in terms of how you approach that and whether what what sits most comfortably with individuals I suppose and what you feel most comfortable being able to achieve and manage yeah and you sort of foreshadowed it there with the sort of behavioral challenges that um women have to face you, know, you were saying that you felt quite quite flat and trying to build motivation to do it can you just explain a bit both you know whether you're choosing to to do it naturally or, or using um medication or, or medical uh help to to manage your period what are those uh psychological and behavioral challenges that women have to face from my perspective, I think the, and again, Mably, please jump in with others that I'm probably going to miss because unfortunately there are quite a lot. I'm sure. Um, but some of the key ones I'd say would be um, psychological changes in mood, increased anxiety um, or worry. Um, 
feelings of being more irritable. So if you're in a team, that one person that normally you might just be able to tolerate, all of a sudden you're just like, I want to go mad at you. Um, being more emotional, so having a lot more emotional responses, but also things like motivation, feeling mm. flatter, like almost having that like can't really be bothered feeling. Um, they're all kind of really more psychological based symptoms that again normally happen within that kind of luteal phase um so that time before menstruation um occurs so they that can be quite you know not talking just around we've spoke a lot to the physical aspects of managing mm. the bleeding and what that looks like when you're outside or on expedition but actually that like mindset can obviously also massively affect you know, you might be in a really harsh environment or really have to push yourself in how you then manage that. And I think, again, helping individuals to have that awareness that they might feel like that to then put the management strategies in place for me is a super key kind of strategy that um, we use. And I'm guessing it's not just, you know, telling you guys, it's telling the whole team, which is yeah. so important. I yeah, like, as I said, if, if you've... Go on, lovely. Oh, well, I was just going to say, sorry, uh, I, I was going to add that, you know, it's when you're as a medic, particularly just sitting down with the team at the start or before ideally the expedition and just say, you know, we're all going to go through ups and downs on this expedition. There's going to be times where people are feeling tipped up and there's going to be times where people are rock bottom and, and it's about supporting each other because you're a team through those things and mm. maybe just highlighting, you know, that there are additional things that might happen on this trip, such as menstruation, people might get sick. And it's about having that, you know, awareness and, and social and people skills that you can sort of help carry your teammates through when one person's having or a few people are having um, a difficult time. And particularly in like a expedition or a remote environment where perhaps your usual support system and network isn't, isn't there with you be that you know you're used to going for a run or you're used to I don't know having a bath when you're feeling low or whatever your coping strategies is in the day you know in in a on a normal day you've suddenly like probably taken a lot of those things away and it's about adapting and thinking about what what am I going to do if I or not me but what are we going to do if we all feel or if at some point we feel low and how do we carry on without sort of affecting team morale and um mm. affecting your own experience of enjoyment and and things like that i think i think luke kind of really uh nailed it a little bit for me about there about the whole team i mean i look at this from an expedition leader perspective what i would hate to have is someone silently suffering in a hammock mm. in the middle of the jungle i mean i've i'm going to put a slightly different twist and i've once had i mean I, i'm proud for having prolapse discs either in my lower back or up under the trap nerves under my shoulder blade you know i've sat on a 15-day jungle expedition and just silently suffering psychologically suffering that i'm in agony and i really don't want to carry on but i know i've got to do it and i've got a job to do and things have got to be done and then the pain side of it and you are you are sitting on your own everyone else seems to be having a great time and and you're not you're not having a great time and you know, with a back injury or with a with a cut or an infection or something, people tend to talk about it. And it, I'm really, really wanting to kind of change that into these kind of discussions that are had so openly and comfortably that it's a very simple and 
kind of easy line of communication and conversation to have with clients and with, with fellow staff members so that no one is sitting there. It, it should be absolutely okay for someone to say, I'm going, I'm, I'm literally about to start my period. So I'm not doing 100% at the minute. Like it's, it doesn't seem that there's the confidence from the female participants to say that, but is that purely because of the reaction they're met with? And when it comes back, is that because it's such a difficult conversation to have? And, you know, how do we break down those barriers within an expedition team? Because we do live with each other. You know, I when I go on a jungle expedition with people, we will all see each other naked. We will all be washing together. It is impossible to get changed outside of a hammock and climb in it and get dressed without exposing everything about yourself to the rest of the team. You know, we live a very close-knit environment when we're on expedition. So I feel that that is at least one environment where we should be able to openly discuss our bodily functions with each other and how they are affecting us mentally and physically as we move forward. So um, my, my, one of the big questions before I move on is, is there or is there going to be soon, because of the amazing people like yourselves, a resource for people like myself to be able to approach these subjects without them being awkward? Because they shouldn't be. I was going to jump in there and kind of speak to the the societal change that needs to occur. So, you know, a lot of, um, in terms of that lack of openness, I suppose, I think also stems from, you know, typically within the past, social media adverts for period products have almost said, use our period product, no one will know you're on your period. Mm. And it's really reinforced that message of it's something that you hide, it's something you, it's secret, it's something that you don't share. And so I think it's, it's going to be quite a, quite a big shift and challenge to achieve it. But hopefully through like not having that messaging, you know, even on adverts now, they're not using blue liquid to you know show that that's your period which is so far removed from the reality of what it is again starting to have it a bit more true to life and you know supporting those conversations I think that will start increasing the openness um equally I do find that you know I would say that if you've got someone that is a leader to actually initiate that conversation because once someone knows that that conversation is open people are so relieved to be able to then speak about it. But sometimes, especially at the moment, there's almost this need to have that invitation in the first place or for someone to step forward and say, actually, this is an okay conversation. This is normal. Um, and normally once that happens, there's, a, there's this like openness that all of a sudden everything spills out and you probably know everything, every single detail. But there's always the perception currently that you're going to make someone else feel awkward by having that mm. conversation. So, for example, I might not have said anything because I'd be really worried I'd make you feel awkward, Matt. Yeah. Whereas as soon as you've gone, actually, that doesn't make me feel awkward. I'm okay with that. It, it provides that kind of environment straight away where it's just normal. Um, so eventually it would be great that it didn't need somebody to almost provide that platform of openness. But I think in the meantime, until that that bigger shift occurs. Um, that's kind of how I, I try and help bridge that gap. It's interesting what you said, Mabley, you know, about having that conversation at the start of the expedition, uh, which is something I try and have, which I would like, we're going to talk about, you know, pee, poo, whatever we need to talk about um, and, and just making it totally normal and, and having a laugh with it in a little bit of a way. Um, but 
what strikes me is that I have to have that conversation with people every time I go on an expedition, uh, even if I've been on with them before, and it's building up that trust again. And it's like, how can we, going post-expedition, or, or post-event, or, or whatever it is, doing, how can we maintain this sort of push for, for making it not taboo and make it something that's so open? I think, when just talking, picking up on the taboo bit, really, I think when you think of periods, there's... There's several aspects, I think, of a period which have societal taboos. Things like, so the bleeding, for instance, of bodily fluids, any sort of urine, poo, it's all a bit of a, they're all taboos, really. And then you've got the mental health struggles that, or the mood changes Mm. that we've had. That's, That's also a societal taboo. And then you've got sort of, you know, the gut changes that you have with, um, periods you know it can cause constipation or it can cause diarrhea and that's also a bit of a taboo and I think there's just so many several aspects and particularly for young women or teenagers when you're trying to encourage people to get out in the outdoors and trying to spark enthusiasm um it's really hard to sort of sell it to people um when you said oh and this is that extra hurdle that you have to you know jump through Mm. or the extra hoop you have to jump through um and talking about it, just having normal conversations like this. And it doesn't have to be, you know, sit down in a lecture or ideally it can just be, you know, oh, we're just, we're, we're on the bus now or we're in the car and let's just like, oh, what you, I've read this recently about this, you know, the cool stuff that's mm. happening in Antarctica. Did you see it? And then it just spot like bring it into your everyday life and just weave it in, I think. The more sometimes... And I do think as expedition medics, and I'm definitely guilty for it myself, the more, sometimes, the more of a deal that we make it, in, in the sense that if we are doing one-to-one interviews with everyone, medicals, which I often do for bigger expeditions, um, I will always ask about periods, but that's not the only time I'll ask about periods, because I want it to be a informal thing. I don't want it to be like, right, now we're going to sit down and talk about this. <laughs> like, it's just something that should be incorporated into day-to-day on expedition and, you know, not on expedition as well. And actually, I was going to add to that. It's one thing that we did that was really great with Arcteryx on the Academy Day is there was a women's only skill day um, mm. to helping them. And actually, so I went along, not with the intention of talking about periods, but again, we just naturally started talking about, we talked about clothing, we talked about harnesses, we talked around periods, but there was that space provided where the conversation was allowed to happen. Um, and actually, that was, there was a really positive kind of response and feedback from providing that, that space and opportunity to do that. Mm. Say, uh, that's amazing. One thing we probably haven't quite touched on yet, but is kind of important for these conversations as well because I think it's one of the biggest anxieties from my own personal experience with taking people on expedition is what do I do with the products once I've changed how do I clean Mm. myself how do I wash and it's just as a leader or um, a medic just being like right okay so there's a bin by the the latrine or the long drop or whatever and and we will be responsible for you know cleaning that up if that's what's if that's suitable or make sure everyone has got ziplock bags to keep product use products safe or keep ones that they've not used yet dry because that's the other thing we can mm. easily get ruined and just having those conversations about the practicalities as well as 
you know, delving into all the nitty gritty of the symptoms, which is, is just as important. But I think often it's easy for us to sit here and say, yes, you know, we can give you some paracetamol for your, your cramps or um, mm. your headaches and we can give you Imodium if you need it for your diarrhea. But actually that, that individual is the one who's going to have to manage their periods if that's what they choose to do and what do they do with those products and, and how do they carry them and things like that as well. I think that you, you stole you stole the wind from my breath, or, or however the saying goes, Valerie. Because I, I wanted to bring it back to when uh, we, when we went to Norway. Um, uh, I'm not embarrassing you here, or Josh. Uh, when we went to Norway, um, there was there was a laugh that all the lads heard from from the cabin. And Valerie, can you just explain <laughs> sort of what what you lovely what the lovely women that were with us uh, were laughing about? I mean, it was. Do you know what? I, I, it, we laugh about it, but it was really, really good. And I was so impressed with Josh and Matt, who sort of organised the, with Unique Expedition, organised the, um, the trip to the Arctic. But there was three of us girls, and at the start, or before we'd gone out into the tundra, they sort of just briefly said that they formed what they'd called a ladies' box for us <laughs> with, <laughs> with things that we might need. Which was actually, it was really good. And it was, you know, those are the sorts of things that um, that need to be done. And yeah, we, we were laughing about it. However, did it or did it not provoke conversation, Luke? It, it, no, it did. And what I was going to say was... Conversations it, it, were had after it, that. Is that the... What can we as medics and leaders and, and expedition facilitators, what should we be bringing it was where i was going with this more the fact of matt and josh have been great in doing this because i wouldn't have even thought about it before that and literally just buying a load of different products and putting it in this box that you guys had some stuff but what is it that we should be providing or we could think about providing um as whether that's spare or additional or, or, or what would you guys recommend that we take with us I think it depends, again, going back to the type of expedition. Like when we were in Norway, we mm. had a base camp. So we had, we could have like a box of products that was there. But if you're doing sort of a A to B trek or, you know, and you're on the move and you're carrying all your stuff, then it's a bit difficult for the expedition medic or leader to bring all the products, um, given you've got loads of other stuff as well as your own kit that you need to bring. I think having a few spare you know sanitary pads or tampons is a good idea um but actually again it comes back to the planning and just telling telling participants that okay you might be taking norethisterone or you might be on the pill or have your coil um but breakthrough bleeding happens and particularly under stress and when you're in an unfamiliar environment people are stressed uh Mm. even if it's you know subconsciously and you sh- they should be bringing or come with some products, ideally in a waterproof uh, Ziploc bag or a dry bag that's going to protect protect them and make sure they don't get you know spoiled if it rains or if your bag falls in the water or whatever. That they mm. should have some products on them as well, um, and just as you would as the expedition medic or leader, just trying to research local pharmacies, local shops in case you do need to stock up on supplies which i know isn't you know not many shops going up to everest <laughs> so it depends on the depends on the um on the expedition we'll, we'll call a helicopter we'll call a helicopter. No, but it's important <laughs> and, and you know you want to 
you want to be able to facilitate and, and allow these expeditions to happen and allow everyone to succeed and no one should feel like they have to you know carry more they shouldn't be able, they shouldn't expect it from us um just like we carry a first aid kit it's something that we can easily carry uh so it's just it's good to know and it's good to think about what products are out there i, I know there's now reusable pads which you know, is great uh which can be cleaned and that these are going to be game-changing things and they just need to be you know people need to know about them and people need to realize what's out there and and then just what we can do to to support it and i think the biggest thing for matt and i when we were talking about this is, is just empowering you guys we wanted to empower you guys to come on to to this podcast and, and talk about it um and, and then empower other women and my question is in and we're going to start to to wrap up now but there's still so much more to talk about so i think we're gonna to have to do a part two but what advice uh, and Natalie, i'll start with you what advice for others regarding women's health w- would you want to share with the world Oh, that's a big question. Sorry, yeah. (laughs) That is a big question. Um, I think just breaking it down, I think in terms of like get to know you so you know what your own experience is of your menstrual cycle. So then you can, you know, don't feel like if you've got any debilitating symptoms that that's normal. Actually, like go and seek some medical support for that. But equally, there are things that you can do in terms of, which we've not even touched on, but in terms of like managing stress, thinking about your diet, thinking about your sleep, kind of strategies that you can actually take and empower and, you know, do for yourself that could really make a difference. And it's all part of that, that planning piece, I think, for me. So actually being proactive, what can you do about it? Um, I think that would maybe be my my one yeah. piece it, 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 that's good advice and Mabley what about you what would be your advice I think oh it's a, it's a loaded question um, yeah, sorry <laughs> I, I, I've got to make it hard you know, I can't make it too easy I think I've, I've said it so many times already but planning and I think as an expedition medic particularly or a leader um just be open about these conversations and like Natalie when you said when you're talking about diet and sleep and stress and travel bring in you know okay so we know that these things are gonna you know not be what you consider to be normal on expedition but how is that going to impact your periods and how is that going to impact your mood and how is that going to impact sort of your motivation and your energy and just having those conversations weaved in to day-to-day life before you go um and also whilst you're out there as well checking in with everybody is really important um and just because you've had that conversation once it it might take two or three times to have a similar conversation before someone starts opening up and you've built that rapport with them um for them to trust you and to to sort of talk about it fantastic i mean i would absolutely love to delve deeper into uh, what you just mentioned Natalie, in regard to diet stresses these kind of things and i think we really need to put a pin in the diary luke for a managing menstruation on expedition kind of chat with how we can really break down those individual elements and really kind of get into those details because they are very important and if there is small changes we can make dietary changes these kind of things that are going to make the whole experience better for participants that for me is is super valuable and um and i feel that is a, an entire podcast in itself for sure so what i'm going to do is i'm going to i'm just going to kind of drop it off now and i'm going to ask you a little closing statement of what's next for you guys so i'll start with you natalie 
what is next on your agenda? What are you now working towards? For me, I'm currently, so lots of research going on in terms of how we can actually, and really speaking to that point around like societal change, I think you asked about resources. That's kind of like a big kind of area I'm working on at the moment is how do we improve education and how do we get information to people now that we've got a bit more research of knowing what um, what is going on as such, like how do we get that to people? So that's kind of a big um, drive and focus for me is being able to share that with others, whether that's in sport, whether that's in schools, um, to really kind of change that across the whole um, spectrum. Fantastic. And Mably? Uh, so professionally, um, I'm currently <laughs> I'm currently about to sit my anaesthetic exam. So that feels like it's taken over my life at the minute. Um, Is that the crossword puzzle? The crossword puzzle. <laughs> no, it's a lot of physics, unfortunately. I wish it was a crossword, but I, I appreciate that. Um, and yeah, I'm working on getting some of my master's work published at the minute, which I'm just waiting to hear back from um, the publishers. And um, I'm also off to the Acreens actually in the in the Alps on on Friday um, to walk the GR54. So I know I'm also due on my period whilst I'm out there. So <laughs> planning, as I've said, which uh, I have to take you know take my own advice on that one. Um, so yeah, looking forward to that as well over the next two weeks. No, that's absolutely amazing, guys. And, and thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been absolutely amazing to have you. And we're definitely going to have to get you back. Matt is totally right. The final thing we're going to do is this new segment. As I said, we've got a new format for the show. And this is called Expedition Essentials. And it's we just want to know what are the three things that you have that is like a must bring. I've got to bring it with me. And it doesn't have to be women's health related. Just your three things that you want to bring with you on Expedition. So, Natalie, do you want to go first? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> Try again. Um, well, on women's health, my one thing would be um, a menstrual cup because that, for me, is just a life saviour. Like, you can keep it in for longer. It's so small. It's so light. It's just easy. So that's, like, definitely one for me. Two other things that I'd bring on expeditions. Mably, you jump in whilst I have a think. Okay. So assuming you've obviously got your water, your sleeping bag, your tent, <laughs> the things I would bring. Yeah, yeah, I'm assuming all this is, this is really easy for me. Yorkshire tea bags, an absolute <laughs> must. <laughs> a book, because sometimes it is just nice to switch off in the evenings if you get a chance just to have a little mm. bit of downtime, um, rest your brain a bit. And the third one is a bag of sweets because when people are having a bit of a rubbish time or when the weather takes a turn for the worse and you're in a group shelter and someone whacks out a bag of sweets oh my gosh it's like you've won the lottery it's yeah those are my three <laughs> my three essentials <laughs> I, I like those I, I definitely sweets are more practical but a bag of more teasers would Ooh, would do the trick yeah. for me mm. and then the other one actually this might sound really bizarre but a pillowcase because Ooh, yeah. as long as I've got, even if I've got like a coat in it or something, as long as I've got like something to sleep on, that makes, that's a game changer for me. So yeah, normally um, a, just a pillowcase so I can make something to sleep on is a, is a big one, for, I think. I, I love these. Maltesers though, I'll, I'll work out a way to make Maltesers practical. I don't, <laughs> know, I don't know how, um, may, maybe in the Arctic, but I think they might break your teeth, Matt. Oh, what do you gosh. think? 
Inf- yeah, you've got, to choo- you've got to choose your environment wisely. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's why I was like, when you said sweets, I was like, oh, I definitely couldn't go with that. You know, more teas would be ideal. And then I was like, but I never take them because just the logistics of it being chaotic. <laughs> but no, but thank you guys so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Guys, I'm going to put all their social media links in the bottom so you can follow along with their stories and please follow along with the podcast as well but guys thank you again so much it's great to have you on the show and we'll definitely get you back thank you thanks so much for having us I hope you guys enjoyed that episode as much as I did. It was so incredible to be able to just listen to everything that these two amazing women have to say. I've just got back from Zambia and we've got so many episodes to record, but we don't actually know what episode we're going to be releasing next. So make sure to follow us on all social media at Medicine on the Frontier to stay up to date with the latest updates and to find out what's coming up next as we explore Medicine on the Frontier. <laughs>